This is a Federal News Network podcast. Rarely does an agency have both money and momentum to pursue real change and innovation, but that's exactly what Robin Carnahan believes she has as the new administrator of the General Services Administration. In her first interview since being confirmed by the Senate about six weeks ago, Carnahan tells our own Federal News Network's Jason Miller how she plans on putting that money and momentum to work for GSA's customers. It has been a very busy six weeks. It's been full of briefings by various folks, mainly from internal teams and business units. All of it still virtually, of course. Had a lot of interaction with folks on the Hill as well about the infrastructure and budget packages and ways that can support GSA's mission, helping us better serve customers. And, you know, we all know the last 18 months have been super challenging for everyone. And I've been really impressed that the GSA team's focus on doing whatever it takes to get the job done and deliver for our partners. I've also had a chance to meet with a few folks from the team in person, which has been a lot of fun and I've appreciated. I was able to attend the opening of a new technology lab office space in GSA that GSA built out for the NGA, the National Geospatial Agency. It was in St. Louis, which is where I am now. So that made it easy to get there. And it was a really terrific example of a collaboration where we had a customer with a very unique type of space need. Uh, And despite the pandemic challenges, our team was able to quickly deliver the -the state-of-the-art office space on time and on budget. And our partners were thrilled and both with the result and the speed of it. And, you know, that's the kind of success I want to see GSA have going forward. You mentioned the meetings, you mentioned kind of getting with different people. From your perspective, what's the biggest challenge you have as administrator coming in, learning all the different aspects? Because your background, you were at 18F, you were focused on state and local at the 18F level, so it's even much different. But now you have public building service, you have all this federal procurement stuff. And you have the running the agency the day in and day out. It is very helpful that I was at GSA for four years during the Obama and Trump administrations, even if it wasn't just one of the pieces uh, of the agency. I got to understand, you know, just how committed and what a terrific bunch of cover, uh, public servants are there. But basically, GSA is a service delivery agency, right? And it's our job to figure out how to deliver that good service for customers and look out for taxpayers doing it. And I'm also interested in empowering the GSA staff with whatever tools they need to do their best work. You asked about challenges. I see that there are a number of challenges. I think probably the biggest challenge and opportunity, I'll say, is helping partners rethink the future of work and what the workplace is going to look like going forward and help them reimagine what that could look like in ways that are secure and equitable and inclusive and put customers right at the center of things. That implicates lots of parts of GSA. When it comes to real estate, that means helping customers right-size their footprint, helping them look at offerings that we're putting together, like a home office in a box that can help folks keep doing their best work wherever they are. And then we're looking at, obviously, immediate needs about how to get safely back into office spaces. So that's a big challenge and opportunity on the the space side. When it comes to technology offerings, you know, GSA is already a trusted partner in buying technology goods and services. But, of course, the consulting teams at TTS have all kinds of value for providing non-conflicted advice to folks when it comes to figuring out their future needs. 
The Tech Modernization Fund is a very big opportunity, but also a challenge because it's a, it's a new thing that's being stood up. But it's a terrific opportunity to provide a lightweight way for agencies to fund, get access to funding more quickly than traditional budget cycles, right? And uh, they can respond to these urgent needs, whether it's cybersecurity or public-facing digital services or shared services. So those are some of the things that I'm, I'm focused on right now. I will say one other thing with that is like state and local government and tribal and territorial governments, you know, we saw during the pandemic that they had a really hard time responding to quickly to people's needs and being able to implement policies that were passed fast in Washington in a time of crisis. And part of that was because of aging technology. We need to be able to help them. We need to make sure taxpayers don't have to pay over and over again every time a state and local government wants to do something that the federal government's already doing. So if there's a shared service, um, I think we need to find opportunities to, to uh, make that available to state and local governments and tribes and territories. Let me back up to the office space and the real estate side. We know just based on the work that's been done over the last few years, there's a huge opportunity around real estate. When you kind of break down where you're spending your time, is that place one, just because of the return to work, the home office in a box, the new Delta variant that throws kind of a curveball at us all, whether we come back to the office or are you, obviously you have a new PBS commissioner. She, she's spending a lot of time there, obviously. How are you kind of breaking up your time and where are you putting your, your energy today versus six months from now where it could be somewhere else? We'll see. I mean, I, I don't think any of us can predict the future. I wouldn't have predicted uh, a few years ago that the office space would be the top, the top item on almost everybody's agenda, but folks are looking about the, their footprints and figuring out how to reassess who's teleworking and who's going to be in the office and what that combination looks like. And GSA is in the middle of all of those conversations, both w- within our own agency, but government-wide. We're on the task forces with OMB and OPM uh, looking at these issues. And so I'm really, I'm really pleased at the team's ability to think big and be thoughtful about this because this is really a moment to be able to reimagine how we deliver services to the public. That's for me, that's really exciting. I'm somebody who believes that government can and should be effective and want to make sure that uh, we do our part to make it so. From a real estate perspective, do you have a set of priorities that you're starting to look at? Are you in development of a set of priorities, obviously, with the new PBS commissioner? One of the major things that we're focused on is is the backlog and maintenance. There is uh, money available in the Federal Buildings Fund. We are talking a lot to our partners on the Hill about how to access that so we can maintain our public buildings in in ways uh, that make them safe and attractive uh, for folks to be working in. And we also have this consolidation question that is just hanging over everyone's every agency as they rethink the future of work. So yeah, there, there are a lot of priorities. And that's an addition to just sort of the normal thing that we deal with all the time, which is new construction. I was going to say the courthouses and the office space and things of that nature. The Federal Building Fund, I know that's been a sticky wicket for GSA for several years. Do you get a feeling that getting access to that money is more likely? Do you get a good feeling yet? It's hard to predict. I know. I know you're going to say, but give me a sense because that's a key to really addressing this backlog. Look, I I am making the case as strongly as I can that it is, we are doing a disservice to the public and to taxpayers if we allow our federal building assets to fall into disrepair. Like it's as simple as that. And we have a backlog of maintenance needs 
And it is it is the responsibility of uh, people in public office to, to make decisions about how to allocate that. Uh, we know what those needs are. We're making the case strongly in Congress, uh, and I'll continue to do that. And if you can do it, that'd be helpful, too. That's why I'm asking you these questions, right? We've got to push from both sides of it. Right. It's always very fascinating to me about how much people care about their office space. GSA pushed for an open office space for several years ago in the early 2010s. People kind of pushed back a little. Do you have a vision of what you'd like the future of office space for federal agencies to look like? Our team definitely has a vision about that. They've been, they've been thinking about this both at GSA, but for other partners. The open offices uh, probably are going to be rejiggered a little bit, depending on how many people are remote, how many are in offices, how much sort of collaborative space you're going to be looking at. Uh, but we've, we've got a team of great professionals who think about this all day long. And so I'm grateful to have them and grateful we're in this moment where we can put these good ideas to work. It doesn't always happen, right, that you have momentum and money around a thing at the same time. And in many of this, the places that GSA uh, is responsible for operating, we have that. Uh, so I plan to take the best advantage of it. I've said a bunch to the team that what I'd really like is for anybody who's interacting with GSA, whether it's walking in a building, online, on the phone, wherever it is, to say, wow, that was a great experience. I wish everything in government could work that well. Like that is my goal here. And I know that in order to achieve that, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got to keep talking to customers. We've got to talk to industry partners. We need to understand how we're doing now and how we can integrate their feedback and, and keep improving. So bottom line, I want to make it as easy as possible for our agency partners to buy and access what they need, uh, goods, services, workspace, technology through GSA. And I want to make it as easy as possible for our industry partners, especially small businesses, to sell through GSA. That's my bottom line. We know there's a lot of lot going on around the GSA in this acquisition world, and we could rattle off the Section 876. We could rat, rat, rattle off 889 and 846 and, and go on and so forth. How closely are you watching some of these priorities and, and some of these initiatives? Are, are you getting feedback every day, every week from Sonny Hashmi and the folks, uh, with Laura Stanton and folks like that? Or is this something, again, very similar to PBS? You have a lot of really good folks who are really doing a good job and and they, they may be bringing you the problems and or the, the successes. Trust me, we talk about these issues a lot. I am, uh, I am in conversations with Sonny multiple times a day uh, about priorities that he's got. But, you know, look, supply chain risk management is an issue. It's critical to ensure that our federal assets are secure. It's also the law. It is a challenge to have all of the priorities be able to be balanced, right? Because... Uh, it can be a burden for contractors. And I say, I want to make it as easy as possible, uh, especially for small businesses. And some of these supply chain issues are particularly difficult for small businesses, but we've got to figure out a way to do both and to, to make sure that uh, we're able to provide the transparency about these issues and, and legal compliance uh, that people expect. I know that one of the things that GSA has really been pressing on is to serve the customer better. You mentioned that just a few minutes ago. The other piece that is industry, I've talked to some folks in industry, and they're excited, obviously, for any new GSA administrator. What is your interaction or what, what do you hope your interaction is with industry? Because whether it's the Coalition for Government Procurement or the Professional Services Council or so many others, they play a, a key role in, in, in both 
providing services to the government, helping GSA meet its mission, but also the, the constant interaction with your folks. I look forward to being able to have more conversations with our industry partners. Uh, as I said, I'm very interested in feedback from both customers and our, our industry partners. We've got to have both sides of those. We've got to get it right. And that is, just takes conversation and iteration. Uh, and that's, that's how I go about things. I tend to be very data-driven and results and impact driven. Uh, and you can only get that if you have both sides of that equation uh, that are at the table and trying to figure out how to get the best results. I think you'll get plenty of uh, speaking opportunities before those groups. I think them and many others like us will always want to uh, take a few minutes of your time. Right. When we talk about priorities, when we talk about challenges, we know, for instance, the White House has talked a lot about the uh, electric fleet of government cars. We know that there's also the goals about equity and, and diversity and inclusion. Walk me through a little bit of how those are all kind of fitting into the broader GSA mission. GSA has always done a lot of different things. When Harry Truman started GSA, it was to streamline government operations and make it work better for people and save money doing it, right? Pretty basic stuff. And that's still what we do today. And so you know, you mentioned the, the fleet, you know, managing the federal fleet has been something GSA has done for a long time, right? That's not a new core mission. That's something we've done for a long time. It's really just an extension of our commitment to provide good service to our agency partners and uh, stay at the cutting edge, right, of whatever innovation and change happens. Obviously, uh, sustainable government, both cars and buildings, is a major priority for the Biden-Harris administration. And it also strikes me that this isn't just an administration policy. The marketplace is moving this way. More and more U.S. manufacturers have talked about uh, putting out zero emission vehicles, both cars and trucks. So the GSA is going to take advantage of that opportunity and help transition the federal fleet. Uh, you know, it's going to take some time to get there, but it's a smart move and it makes both good economic sense and it's good for the environment. I think one of the things that you, you bring up is cutting edge and innovation and, and that's maybe where a lot of your background comes in, uh, your time at, at 18F and, and state and local organizations. How is that kind of influencing your approach to being the administrator? Because it's one thing to run a piece of it. Now you're running all of it. And, and that's in and of itself its own challenge. Sure. It's a different challenge. Uh, as I said, I, I was there at 18F, spent four years there. Interestingly, as you probably know, I am not a trained technologist. I'm a lawyer by training. But I did spend time leading a big government agency in my home state of Missouri as Secretary of State. And so I learned a lot of lessons while I was there about the importance of technology, the importance of procurement, things that you don't always think about when you think about government service delivery. But it turns out if you don't get those right, you can't provide effective service to the public. What I was able to do at 18F was to sort of dig deeper into those issues. I'm somebody who wants government to work well. Turns out technology and procurement have to get fixed if you're going to have government work well. That time at 18F helped me understand both the scale of the problem, interestingly, to like recognize even more the common patterns, right, across agencies or through different levels of government. And working with a bunch of people who are trained technologists was able to identify what are like sensible cost-effective ways to attack those and address those problems and issues. And I spent a lot of my time helping non-technical government leaders sort of communicate and translate their policy priorities and objectives 
into how to effectively implement those uh, through technology and delivery. And so those are really, really valuable lessons that I am using every day uh, in this job as administrator. One of the things we saw through the last year is that you can pass a policy in Washington, but if you can't implement it, it has it's the same effect for people if they can't see the result. And so that's why the implementation role that GSA plays and supporting our agency partners in implementing through technology or anything else is so important. Uh, and that's why, to me, it's an exciting time to be at GSA. The previous administrator, Emily Murphy, had a bunch of dashboards that she had set up to really give her some interesting data. I imagine that you're using those. Is there anything that has surprised you around GSA in, in the short time you've been there? Anything that stood out? And I'm just going to preface this besides how wonderful the people are, because I know, generally speaking, <laughs> good managers always go right to the people. So I'll, I'll, I'll get in front of that. Well, well, we do have great teams, so I'm not going to not going to avoid talking about that because I, I'm proud of the team and want to figure out how to empower them to do even better. Um, having insight and transparency about what's happening across the agency and providing that uh, not not just internally, but externally as well is something that I have aspirations to do. Just like every part of government, there are lots of different systems that don't always communicate with each other. And one of the goals is going to be to try to communicate better and have better visibility. So yeah, I've been looking at those dashboards. I'm very interested in them. And uh, uh, we're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll put them to good use. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. And during his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, 
it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture 
of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.